Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover thromboembolism in pregnancy. Deep vein thrombosis, DVT, and pulmonary embolism, PE, are collectively referred to as venous thromboembolic events, or VTE. Approximately 75 to 80% of cases of pregnancy-associated VTEs are caused by DVT and 20 to 25% of cases are caused by PE, although approximately one-half of these events occur during pregnancy and one-half occur during the postpartum period, the risk per day is greatest in the weeks immediately after delivery. Pregnancy, of course, is associated with physiologic and anatomic changes that increase the risk of thromboembolism, including hypercoagulability, increased venous stasis, and decreased venous outflow. Also, there's compression of the inferior vena cava and pelvic veins by the enlarging uterus and decreased mobility. Pregnancy also alters the levels of coagulation factors normally responsible for hemostasis, so the overall effect of these changes is an increase in thrombogenic capability. Now, when DVT occurs during pregnancy, it is more likely to involve the left lower extremity and to be more proximal, involving the iliac and iliofemoral veins. Now, this is in comparison with non-pregnant populations. So, this distribution has been attributed to increased venous stasis in the left leg related to compression of the left iliac vein by the right iliac artery. This is called May-Turner anatomy. This is coupled with compression of the vena cava by the gravid uterus. Once again, when DV occurs during pregnancy, here's your clinical pearl. It's most likely to involve the left lower extremity, mainly because of the distribution of compression of the left iliac vein by the right iliac artery called May-Turner anatomy. The risk for VTE may be higher in the third trimester compared with the first and the second trimesters, but the increased risk of VTE is present from the first trimester onward. Now, the risk of VTE is higher during the postpartum period than it is during pregnancy itself, especially during the first week postpartum. Now, here's a clinical pearl. The most important individual risk factor for VTE in pregnancy is a personal history of thrombosis. The risk of recurrent VTE during pregnancy is increased threefold to fourfold and 15 to 25% of all cases of VTE in pregnancy are recurrent events. Now, after a personal history, the next most important individual risk factor for VTE in pregnancy is the presence of a thrombophilia. Thrombophilia is present in 20 to 50% of women who experience a VTE during pregnancy and the postpartum period. Both acquired and inherited thrombophilias increase the risk of a VTE. Well, if the highest risk for a DVT is in the immediate postpartum period, what is ACOG stance about universal postpartum thromboprophylaxis? Well, according to the college, there's insufficient evidence to guide clinical decision-making regarding routine pharmacological thromboprophylaxis during and after pregnancy, highlighting the need for better studies. Now, although available evidence has been extrapolated from non-pregnant patients, current evidence is insufficient to recommend universal adoption of pharmacological prophylaxis for VTE, and thromboprophylaxis should be individualized 
randomized according to patient risk factors. Now, in the absence of clear randomized controlled trials, practitioners should rely on consensus-derived clinical practice guidelines or recommendations from national and international societies. Now, remember, this has to do with pharmacological treatment. Most agree that after, for example, a C-section with a potential for slightly prolonged immobilization, at least sequential compression devices should be used. Okay, when we come back, let's talk about how the diagnosis of DVT and PE can be made in pregnancy. DVT accounts for most cases of pregnancy-associated VTE, the two more common initial symptoms of DVT present in more than 80% of women with pregnancy-associated DVT are pain and swelling in the extremity. So that's your clinical pearl. Watch out for pain and swelling in the extremity. A difference in calf circumference of 2 centimeters or more is particularly suggestive of a DVT in a lower extremity. When signs or symptoms suggest new-onset DVT, the recommended initial diagnostic test is compression ultrasound. Now, when results are negative or equivocal and iliac vein thrombosis is suspected, now this is based on swelling of the entire leg with or without flank, buttock, or back pain, additional imaging with Doppler ultrasound of the iliac vein, venography, or magnetic resonance imaging can be done. Alternatively, depending on the clinical circumstance, empiric anticoagulation may be a reasonable option. Now, when results are negative and the iliac vein thrombosis is not suspected, repeat imaging in three days and seven days can be considered. Now, remember, although D-dimers can be used in non-pregnant women or non-pregnant individuals overall, D-dimer levels are not helpful to exclude VTE because during pregnancy, there is a progressive increase in D-dimer levels. All right, well, now let's talk about PE. The diagnosis of new onset PE is similar to that in the non-pregnant individual. Ventilation perfusion scanning and CT angio are associated with relatively low radiation exposures for the fetus. Now, although the fetal exposure from ventilation perfusion is low, the mean fetal dose associated with helical CT are actually lower. Now, even though fetal radiation exposure is lower with CT, both studies are associated with low radiation exposure for the baby overall, and maternal radiation exposure, particularly to the breast, is lower with a ventilation perfusion scan. So let's say that again. Although both have low radiation exposure to the baby, mean exposure of radiation to the child is lower with a helical CT, but there's overall less maternal exposure to the breast with a ventilation perfusion scan. So the American Thoracic Society and the Society for Thoracic Radiology, both of their clinical guidelines for the evaluation of suspected PE in pregnancy, suggest that a chest x-ray be used as the initial evaluation. Now, you can progress to a VQ scan if the chest x-ray is normal and a CT angio if the chest x-ray is abnormal. Now, this recommendation is based in part on the higher radiation dose to the pregnant woman with CT angio. However, the selection of the most appropriate test also rely on local availability and the expertise. So a recent Cochrane review concluded that ventilation perfusion scan and CT angio were reasonable for the exclusion of BP in pregnancy, but cautioned that the quality of evidence was low and it was unclear which test was more accurate. 
Now, regarding treatment, adjusted dose anticoagulation is recommended for all women with acute VTE during pregnancy. International consensus guidelines suggest that after an initial treatment of three to six months, depending upon the type of VTE event, anticoagulation intensity can be decreased to intermediate or prophylactic dose for the remainder of the pregnancy and for at least six weeks postpartum. Now, other candidates for anticoagulation during pregnancy include women with a history of thrombosis or those who are at significant risk of VTE during pregnancy or the postpartum period, like those with certain thrombophilias. Now, ACOG classifies thrombophilias as low-risk or high-risk. Low-risk thrombophilias are factor V Leiden heterozygous status, prothrombin G 20-210A heterozygote status, protein C or protein S deficiency, and antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. According to the college, high-risk thrombophilias include factor V Leiden homozygosity, prothrombin gene G2210A homozygosity, and heterozygosity for factor V Leiden and prothrombin G2210A, or antithrombin deficiency. Again, the college recognizes these two groups as either low-risk or the just-reviewed high-risk thrombophilias. Now, why does this matter? This matters because this can affect antepartum or postpartum management based on the patient's history and clinical scenario. For example, if a patient has a single provoked VTE history that was precipitated by a specific event like surgery, trauma, or immobility, but was unrelated to estrogen or pregnancy, or it was due to a transient now resolved risk factor, and there's no thrombophilia, ACOG states that the antepartum management can be surveillance without anticoagulation, and postpartum surveillance without anticoagulation can be offered as well, or prophylactic anticoagulation can be used if there's additional risk factors. Now, if the patient has a low-risk thrombophilia without a previous VTE, ACOG states that the antepartum management can include surveillance without anticoagulation therapy. Postpartum surveillance without anticoagulation therapy can also be done, or postpartum prophylactic anticoagulation can be used if there's additional risk factors. Again, this is for low-risk thrombophilia without a previous VTE. Now, if there's a high-risk thrombophilia, even without a previous VTE history, then ACOG suggests that antepartum, either prophylactic or intermediate dose, low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin can be used. And postpartum prophylactic anticoagulation with the same is also recommended. Once again, this is why there's a distinction between low-risk thrombophilia and high-risk thrombophilia events. The management of newly diagnosed VTE consists of initiation of adjusted dose, that's therapeutic, subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin. Hospitalization for the initiation of anticoagulation therapy can be indicated in cases of hemodynamic instability, a large clot, or maternal comorbidities. Intravenous unfractionated heparin can be considered in the initial treatment of PE and in situations in which delivery surgery, or thrombolysis, which is indicated for life-threatening or limb-threatening thromboembolism, may be necessary. 
Now, when patients appear to be hemodynamically stable, low molecular weight heparin can be substituted in anticipation of discharge from the hospital. Postpartum, these patients should receive at least six weeks of therapy or a minimum duration of therapy of three to six months, depending on the clinical scenario. Well, what about monitoring of anticoagulation therapy? Well, data are unclear regarding the optimal surveillance of anticoagulation therapy during pregnancy when used in adjusted therapeutic doses determined by weight to treat or prevent VTE. It's not clear whether the dose of low molecular weight heparin needs to be adjusted upward. Some suggest that the dose should be adjusted as maternal weight changes during pregnancy on the basis of small studies that demonstrated the need for increased low molecular weight heparin to maintain anti-factor 10A levels between 0.5 and 1.0. Some advocate periodic assessment of anti-factor 10A levels 4 to 6 hours after injection, but other studies have shown that few women actually require increased doses when weight-based doses are given. So if patients are converted from adjusted dose low molecular weight heparin to a subcutaneous adjusted dose of unfractionated heparin in anticipation of delivery, then an activated PTT should be checked and their dose of heparin adjusted to maintain PTT in the therapeutic range of 1.5 to 2.5 times control, 6 hours after injection. Okay, next, let's tackle anticoagulation therapy around the time of delivery. Decisions regarding therapy should be based on the usual obstetrical indications, incorporating the goals of maintaining adequate anticoagulation before delivery, as well as avoiding an unwanted coagulation effect during delivery. Now, the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology has published consensus guidelines that address thromboprophylaxis and neuraxial anesthesia considerations, specifically in the OB population. Now, for women who are receiving prophylactic low molecular weight heparin, discontinuation is recommended at least 12 hours before scheduled induction of labor or cesarean delivery. A 24-hour interval is recommended for patients on adjusted dose regimens. For unfractionated heparin doses of 7,500 units, sub-Q, twice a day or more, a 12-hour interval as well as evaluation of coagulation studies with lab testing are recommended. Women receiving anticoagulation therapy may be converted from low molecular weight heparin to the shorter half-life unfractionated heparin in anticipation of delivery depending upon the institution's protocol. Now, an alternative option may be to stop anticoagulation and induce labor within 24 hours if clinically appropriate. If conversion to unfractionated heparin is planned, the timing for this should be based on the clinical scenario, including incorporation of the likelihood of spontaneous labor and the goal of minimizing the time that appropriate anticoagulation is not being administered. Now, given the potential need for urgent or emergent procedures in obstetrics, the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia has guidelines which incorporate decision support to provide guidance regarding the use of neuraxial anesthesia if the recommended time since the last dose has not yet elapsed. 
Remember that protamine sulfate can be used to reverse unfractionated heparin, but it's less predictable to reverse low molecular weight heparin. The dose of protamine sulfate is dependent on whether the patient is receiving unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin and the route by which these mechanisms are being administered. Reversal of heparin, however, is rarely required and is not indicated with a prophylactic dose of heparin. So for women in whom anticoagulation therapy has temporarily been discontinued, pneumatic compression devices, remember, are also recommended. Now, once delivery occurs, the optimal time to restart anticoagulation therapy postpartum is unclear, but there are some guidelines. A reasonable approach to minimize postpartum bleeding is resumption of anticoagulation no sooner than 4 to 6 hours after vaginal birth or 6 to 12 hours after cesarean delivery. When reinstitution of anticoagulation therapy is planned postpartum, pneumatic compression devices should be left in place until the patient is ambulatory and until anticoagulation therapy is restarted. Okay, let's come back and wrap up this podcast with a quick discussion of thromboprophylaxis during cesarean section, as well as a quick review of oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors, which should be avoided in pregnancy. Cesarean delivery approximately quadruples the risk of VTE in comparison with a vaginal birth, but still, in the otherwise normal patient, the risk is still overall low, about 3 in 1,000 patients. Now, given this increased risk nonetheless, and based on extrapolation of perioperative data, then pneumatic compression devices are recommended for all women who undergo a cesarean delivery, and they should be left in place until the patient is ambulatory. Now, for patients undergoing C-section with additional risk factors for thrombo embolism, individual risk assessment may support thromboprophylaxis with pneumatic compression devices and low molecular weight heparin. In those with contraindications to anticoagulants, then postpartum mechanical prophylaxis is advised over no prophylaxis at all. Now, regarding oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors, these medications should be avoided in pregnancy and during breastfeeding because there's insufficient data to evaluate safety for the woman, the fetus, or the breastfeeding neonate. Now, ex vivo studies of human placentas have demonstrated the transfer of oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors across the placenta. This raises concerns for an indirect effect on fetal blood coagulation. Also, maternal ingestion of oral direct inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors results in detectable levels in human milk. Once again, oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors, although easy to use because they're oral, are contraindicated in pregnancy and during lactation. Okay, lastly, remember that women with a history of thrombosis who have not had a complete evaluation of possible underlying etiologies should be tested for antiphospholipid antibodies and for inherited thrombophilias. Thrombophilias give you DVTs and PEs. However, thrombophilias have not been associated with recurrent early fetal pregnancy loss. Hey, this wraps up our Thromboembolism in Pregnancy podcast, which was ACOG Practice Bulletin number 196 from July of 2018. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.